I had really struggled with the identity that I thought I had for myself, which was gonna be like, okay, go get this career, like make it in the corporate world, then pop out some babies, do this family thing, you know, like I had been groomed for it like my whole life. And so when these decisions were literally removed from me, I was like, am I even a person? Like, who am I? Like, I'm not working, I can't have kids, like all of these things that kind of identify us are being removed. And it was really scary. I had like seven white coats in my room staring at me and I was alone, my husband was at work, I was just in the hospital by myself. And they said, you have leukemia and as soon as we can get insurance clearance, we have to give you chemotherapy. And I was like, what? Like the lights, you know, like in the movie and like everything's like slow move. I mean, it's just how it happens. Like you're like, am I hearing this correctly? I, I don't know what's happening. And, and I said, well, am I, am I gonna live? And they were like, honestly, we don't know. Like you're so far gone. Like if the cancer doesn't kill you, the chemotherapy will probably kill you. Like it's just such a candid conversation for them. Hey, it's Michael. And this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with this week's conversation about resilience. But first, if you wish to create a better life and have a better career, then please visit michaelobrienshift.com and download your free workbook on how to create a better life. In it, you'll discover ways to find more energy for the things and the people who matter most to you so you can create a better tomorrow. Hey there, it's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another conversation about resilience. Back in April, I went to the Plant Power Way retreat in Tuscany, Italy. It was hosted by Rich Roll and Julie Pia. And as you might imagine, it didn't stink. It was pretty amazing. The food was insanely delicious. But what I loved most were the people I met, like-hearted humans looking to put beautiful ripples into the world. And I know many of them will be lifelong friends. So as I reintroduce the Kintsugi podcast to the world, I want to introduce you to these wonderful humans that I met in Italy. Like you and like me, they are resilient, but they're not wickedly famous but their stories are wonderful. Here's the thing. I love hearing stories of courage, of resilience, of triumph. I love discovering how people got over and around and through their obstacles, and they found a way through it all. And many of the stories we hear on podcasts and the news are about people who sit at the top of the spear among us all, the one percenters, the people on the edge. And their stories are incredibly inspiring. But I also know this through the life I've lived, and I believe you know it too, that within our neighborhoods, in our companies, our places of worship, there are amazing stories of courage and resilience and triumph that we might not know about. We might not hear because that person isn't uber famous or 
in the 1% of all of us. But their stories are just as valuable. In fact, in many ways, they might be more valuable because they're people like us. They're trying to make sense of all this. And life threw them a curveball. Life gave them the unexpected. And through all their different qualities, they are finding a way through. Their stories, in so many ways, are more relatable. That's why I'm so excited to share this week's story of resilience. She is a difference maker, and I met her in Italy. Most stories that we hear about resilience have this traditional arc, much like the hero's journey. We break, we trip, we stumble, we find a way to get back up, and then we transform ourselves into a different type of beautiful state. And we tie it up in a nice bow, we write a book, we come on a podcast, and we ripple it out into the world. But this week, our guest, she's still going through what she's going through. It's not all tied up in a nice package. And here's what I love about her story and this week's conversation. It's real. Not every story of resilience is all buttoned up. All this thing, this thing that we do called life, it's messy. So after beating cancer three times, now she's dealing with the toxic aftermath of all of her cancer treatments. She shares her story with honesty. Some moments are joyful. Other moments downright suck. And a lot of moments, we share space for both of those emotions and all the different emotions that we all feel. So if you're ready to be inspired, find a comfortable position, and let's take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And I'm happy to introduce to you Kara Turia and her story of resilience. Kara, so good to see you. It's so good to see you too, Michael. I've missed you. I've missed your energy. For those that don't know, Kara and I met now six months ago Mm -hmm. in Tuscany, Italy. Not a bad place to meet. We were at the Rich Roll and Julie Piat Plant Power Way retreat. And we had gorgeous food with gorgeous people. So, so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. It's just really nice to see you and be able to talk again and hang out virtually. So let's start with this question. Who we are changes over time. We were just talking before we hit record about the stories that we have about ourselves that are formed by other people, that are told to ourselves by ourselves. So as people get to know you, what's the story of you today? Like, how do you identify yourself today? Oh, that's like such a hard question because I'm actually trying to move in the opposite direction. (laughs) So I think, yes, 100%, like who we are changes over time. And I think that's hard to accept because you hear all the time, 
who you are never changes or people don't change or, you know, all of these kind of things. And so when you start to evolve, there can be like some resistance of like, wait, am I supposed to change? Am I not supposed to change? I was this kind of person. Don't I need to stay true to it? And so there can be, at least for me, some identity loss in trying to figure out where I fit in or like how to label that. So I found that by trying to not identify who I am, it's allowing a lot more space and freedom to just explore other things and not try to put a label on it. Because I'm not working right now and I'm 34. And I went from a job that I really, really loved that I was like really good at, like getting employee of the year and all of that. And I had great relationships with people. And I was formerly a sommelier and it was awesome. And I got cancer. And so all of that came to a screeching halt. And then I got cancer again and again. So I got hit with it like three times in the span of five years, almost died a few times. It was really intense. And then I went through early menopause and couldn't have a family. So I had really struggled with the identity that I thought I had for myself, which was going to be like, okay, go get this career, like make it in the corporate world, then pop out some babies, do this family thing, you know, like I had been groomed for it like my whole life. And so when these decisions were literally removed from me, I was like, am I even a person? Like, who am I? Like, I am... I'm not working. I can't have kids. Like all of these things that kind of identify us are being removed. And it was really scary. And it was very, it left me feeling like really, really vulnerable. So if you ask me like who I am today, I would say I'm discovering that. And right now I am, I'm with you and I'm having coffee and we're having a great conversation. I think that's a great answer. That's perfect. Cause it's, it's ever changing, right? And yeah, those old scripts that we get when we're young, that whole like, yeah, go to college, get good grades, get a gig, do your corporate thing, marry, meet someone, you guys get married, you have babies, 2.1, you buy a Subaru. <laughs> yeah. And then that's life. And kids grow up, they go to college, you retire empty nest, you visit the grandkids, boom, and then you die. Like that whole arc, right? So that's that's a common arc. But then we get into like real life and you hear other narratives like people don't change. And then you hear, well, people change all the time. A person doesn't step in the same river twice, which is like the river's always changing and the person's always changing. What the heck is the truth? So it's yeah. crazy. You mentioned cancer, the big C. So we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that later. My wife and I love relationship origin stories. So you're married. Well, you guys have like the best origin story. Like when I came back from Italy, I was like, I'm with this guy named Michael. I don't know. I feel like he's like a dad, but he's too young. So he's like my older brother that I never had. And let me tell you, let me tell you about his story. So I love talking about that, which maybe you should just share for some people that are just tuning in about just kind of the quick version of it. But I mean, I just think it's literally the most adorable thing I've ever heard. I can definitely share that. But then we got to get to your origin okay. story too. So here I was, I was early 20s. All my friends were dating people and no one wanted to go out anymore. Everyone was like becoming a homebody. And one of the things I love, one thing that I missed most during the pandemic was live music. So I just wanted to go out, see Washington, D.C. That's where I was at, go to concerts, you name it. 
And so every Thursday, I think this is still a thing, although it might be different now that we have apps and social media and all that jazz and dating apps. We would get the Washington City paper. And back then, in the early 90s, you'd get it and you'd flip to the back. So you'd go out Thursday night, you get some drinks, you come back to your place, have a late dinner, probably grubby food, right? You do the thing. And then you just laugh at these ads. And most of the ads were placed by men looking for women. There were a few ads of women looking for men, but a lot of men looking for women. And you would read these ads and you you would just laugh out loud thinking, who says this stuff? Like, and who would answer this ad? This ad is like crazy. Like no one's meeting this way because the narrative was you go out to bars. That's how you meet people or you get hooked up by a family friend or your aunt or what have you. And I, I was like, well, I'm going to get curious. I'm going to write an ad. I'm going to actually see who responds to these ads. <laughs> so I wrote this ad and I put it in the paper and when that goes in the paper, the other person has to call a 900 number. That's how they made the money. So the ad costs like two bucks. And my wife, it cost her about eight bucks. And they listen to a voicemail message where I go on a little bit further about who I am. And she left her response to my ad on the last day it ran. So after the next day, no more ad. I had a few other women respond. Usually, there's more men responding to women placing ads than, as I mentioned, men placing ads and looking for women to respond. So she placed her response. We chatted for about an hour and a half. And then she told me she had to go to the ballet, the Russian ballet. And I was like, I've heard of a lot of reasons to get off the phone <laughs> with me. But that was the first person that said, I'm going to the Russian ballet. I was like, is this legit? It was legit. She has her master's in Russian literature. She's sort of a Russian aficionado. And we talked again for an hour and a half. And then we finally went on a date. And I was like, hey, you know, let's, we should go out. You know, you want me to meet you at the restaurant? I can pick you up. I didn't want to feel like I was making it sort of creepy. And so she had this whole thought pattern in her head that she was not going to allow me to pick her up at her place. Cause who knows? Like I could have been some creep Right. So after three <laughs> hours of chatting, she was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do it. Like, and she gave me her address and the whole thing. And we went on our first date and it was sort of like, all right, this is gonna, this is gonna work out. So we hit it off and we had a really great first date. Aww. We had a little bit of a rougher second date. And then she gave me a big talk, which is a, was a great talk. Like, don't tell me you're going to call me if you're not going to call me talk. And I called her like right away. And the rest is history. <laughs> and come a few months, Aww. you know, we'll be together for like over 30 years. So, which is pretty cool. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. So we got today's Congrats. terms, we got married fairly young. So yeah, uh, pretty wild story. So, all right, back to your story. How did you meet your husband? We met in California. So I went to school in LA, like in the Valley. And so I'm going to back up just a little bit to give you a little bit of background. So I was the oldest of five kids and my mom was like a home birther, bread baker. 
traveling through the woods, finding mushrooms and making kombucha like 30 years ago. So when it like wasn't cool to bring like homemade whole wheat and, you know, freshly made peanut butter (laughs) to school. And so she actually homeschooled all of us. And so we didn't really have a formal education. We like our education looked like foraging in the woods. It looked like learning how to bake bread. Fractions was, okay, two-thirds a cup of oil to a one-third cup of vinegar makes a salad dressing. Okay, now you know your fractions. So I grew up a really interesting life that it seems normal, right, until you get into the real world and then you're like, oh, okay, this is different. So I grew up in a really big family. And so formal education was kind of intimidating to me, but neither one of my parents had gone to college. And so I really felt this responsibility being the oldest of five kids to go to school to show them that, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. And so I had a cousin who lived in LA and was like, hey, if you come out for college, I will let you live with me rent free. As long as you're in school, you just have to figure out how to pay for your own school. So I was like, oh, well, that's easy. So I moved in with them, started going to school. And one of my friends that I eventually moved in with went to Bible college. And so she had a guy in her class named Micah who was like all tatted up and he was from Hawaii and he made guitars and climbed waterfalls and and all this stuff. And so I quickly kind of like knew his name, but I was super shy, like had no boyfriends. My dad told me I couldn't date until I was married. So just a little bit like awkward. And so I found out kind of what Starbucks he was like studying at. And I was like, oh, I could just show up at that Starbucks. So I would just show up just to be in the same Starbucks and just kind of watch him interact with the mutual friends that we had, like a creep, and just not say anything. And every once in a while, he'd be like, oh, are you Kara? That looks like a really complicated book you're reading. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally is. And then the conversation like wouldn't go any further. Well, I kind of like forgot about him. And well, not really forgot about him, but kind of, you know, life gets busy and things like that. And so my roommate was like, oh, do you remember that guy, Micah, like a year ago you were crushing on? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, I think he like, I think I have a blind date for you, except I know you kind of know him. Um, He was just complaining to me that in Bible college, you know, you can't find anybody who swears. Nobody likes to cook and like nobody likes to go out to concerts and see good music. And I told him, I was like, well, you should meet my roommate, Kara. She's into like all of that stuff. And so he was like, okay, we'll set it up. So I was like, oh, he's Asian. Like I'll make Asian food. He'll come over to my house. So it like puts control in my hand. And then like when he got over there, I was like, what am I doing? I'm making Asian food for an Asian. Like I'm making the whitewashed version of P.F. Ching's Mongolian beef. Like, ah, like what is he going to think about me? And at the time I was kind of like a whirlwind in the kitchen, like very chaotic. So he like walks into like this giant mess and, and everything. And he was like, is there anything I can do to help? And I was like, Hmm. I was like, actually, this beef needs cut by one eighth by two inch strips. I need like, you know, 60 pieces. Da, 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 da. So I gave him like really specific directions thinking like, haha. And he had it like all sliced up in a matter of like eight minutes. I shit you not. And I was like, okay, what's the deal? Like, clearly you've been in the kitchen. You're like acting like a novice. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I did sushi for like three years, you know, living in Hawaii. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, I make a really good sous chef. So I'm like, crushing on him. But I like don't know how to do this thing called like dating. So he I think he picks up on that like he's smart. (laughs) So he's like, I noticed you like cooking. I live with an elderly Asian lady that makes some amazing Asian dishes. Would you like to come over and learn how to cook some dishes, which I just thought was so tender and so sweet for him to kind of like meet me where I'm at. Whereas if he would have asked me out on a date, I think I would have been like, oh, I've never been on a date. I, 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 
I, you know, I would have like started freaking out, but he totally saw where I was at was curious, met me where I was at. And so our friendship kind of started developing through going to shows, going to eat, like going to hikes and, you know, being in LA, there's so many exciting things to do. And so it's just really fun to have a partner. So where it did get dicey though, was when you're friends for so long, and I don't know, maybe you and your wife experienced that is then how do you like break the friendship into like, like the intimacy. And so there were some awkward moments of having that real conversation of like, maybe we can't be together because we're going to be friends. And then there was at one point I told him, you know, we either need to be together or not be together. And he's like, Oh, but I just have such a great friend and I don't want to lose her. And I was like, (gasps) you know, so there was that, you know, like that, that intensity and that back and forth. And then one day it kind of like just exploded. And we were like, no, we're going to do this. And so it was really interesting because we had a base of friendship and I didn't know how important that would be with the tragedy that was going to align for us because intimacy is something that is really difficult. I'm sure like as you experienced when you are almost dying, when you're going through chronic pain and illnesses. And so it's like, if you don't have something behind the romance, the intensity, what do you have? And so that really deep foundation has really been what has like kept us through is like, I, through those things, like didn't need a romantic partner. I needed a friend, a deep friend who really understood me and really was able to see me. And so it's just interesting kind of like how those things work. I love that story. It's so tender, as you mentioned by him to meet you where you're at. And yeah, I can so appreciate the nerves. You got this blind date that's not a blind date. And you take on the complexity of now we're going to make a meal. It's not like you're just going out to like get coffee. It's like, (laughs) no, no, no. We're just going to do the whole thing right now. We're going to like make the meal, which is, which is nerve wracking, just normal. So that, I think that's a really good indication of like, okay, if you're going to be with me, buckle up, brother. We're going to go for a ride. All right. So let's fast forward now from that period of time to, you mentioned cancer. So when we have our vows, at least we had traditional, pretty traditional vows. I'm not sure what your vows sounded like, you know, between you and him, but it was the whole like, you know, be together in sickness and in health. Like it's all things that you say. Right. You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm saying all this, but none of this is going to happen to us. Like we're going to, we're going to be good. I'll take care of you when you get the flu. I'll make you chicken soup. I'll rub your back. If you get an allergy, I'll go out and buy some whatever, right? Some Kleenex, right? But none of this is going to happen to us. This happens to other people, but we're going to say it. Right. So tell me and share about the early days of your cancer diagnosis and if you can set the stage for us. Yeah. I mean, our vows are very much the same. We we had the traditional vows. And then I really, we both took some time to reflect to kind of think about the challenges that we were going to face individually and together, and then created vows based around that. And it's really interesting because my mom gave me some really great advice early on. And she told me, when you choose a partner, I want you to imagine that your partner becomes a paraplegic. And do you feel the desire to want to comfort them, take care of them. If that's what your life's purpose would turn into, could you do that? And I remember being at a point with Micah, feeling that like love for him and being like, oh my gosh, my life would not be wasted. Absolutely, I could do that. And being the oldest of five kids, 
I was a caretaker. I taught a lot of my siblings how to read, potty train them, all that stuff. So I'm like, yeah, like, absolutely. I can be that person for you. I think what's really interesting is I didn't ever, ever think that I would be the person being taken care of, put in the vulnerable position. As a giver, yes, it involves a lot of like work and resources, but you're never the one being vulnerable. You're never taking, you're just always giving. And so there is an ease in being the giver versus the receiver. So my cancer happened when I was 29 years old. So we had been married for four years and it came on, it's an acute leukemia. So it comes on super, super fast. So I was actually experiencing what people would call like pregnancy symptoms super tired, really nauseous, all this stuff. And they actually thought my liver had failed. So I was in the hospital for a liver transplant that they couldn't give me because they couldn't figure out what was going on, progressively getting worse, like pretty much like on the verge of death. And they had told me, hey, we're just going to run results past oncology. They'll probably have to do a bone marrow biopsy just to clear you for cancer. And literally within 15 minutes, I had like seven white coats in my room staring at me. And I was alone. My husband was at work. I was just in the hospital by myself. And they said, you have leukemia. And as soon as we can get insurance clearance, we have to give you chemotherapy. And I was like, what? Like the lights, you know, like in the movie and like everything's like slow. move. I mean, it's just how it happens. Like you're like, Am I hearing this correctly? I, I don't know what's happening. And and I said, well, am I am I going to live? And they were like, we, honestly, we don't know. Like, you're so far gone. Like, if the cancer doesn't kill you, the chemotherapy will probably kill you. Like, it's just such a candid conversation for them. It was just happening so fast. I, and so I, you know, instantly, a day or two later, passed out, ended up in the ICU, and eventually regained health. And they told me, you know, hey, we're going to get this thing in remission a high, high likelihood that if it comes back and if it comes back, then, you know, we don't have a lot of options for you. And so I was able to get the cancer in remission through nine months of chemotherapy and a lot of some chemotherapy you can do outpatient. Mine was inpatient because it was so intense. So basically the chemo that I had brought me to the brink of death by like killing all my brain cells. Then I would have to get a bunch of platelets and get some, you know, red blood cells and then do it all over again for like nine months. And my doctor told me not to work. Well, you know, I'm 29. I'm an oldest child. I'm really ambitious. You know, I'm really into the David Goggins thing, <laughs> which might not be best practice for cancer patients. But at the time, it got me, I guess, to where I needed to be. And so I started working like behind his back. And and I thought it was great. Like I got to the end of it. I got into a remission in eight months. And I was like, okay, I'm going to work out even harder. I'm going to take my body back. I started running. I ran my first like 30 miles. And I was not athletically inclined at all. Because I was homeschooled, I was never in any sports, never ran a mile, you know, so I'm rediscovering this like physical part of myself that I'm really stoked on. And I beat cancer. And I'm like, whoa, yes, you know, finding this newfound strength. And then it came back a second time and I didn't expect that. And we went through a really hard set of questions of, hey, we don't know if we can get you into a remission. The likelihood is very, very small. And then if you do, you need to go through a bone marrow transplant. And it's really interesting because I remember this point reading in one of my my books in high school about a bone marrow transplant. And I remember being like, wow, that sounds really intense. They kill off your entire immune system, all of your bone marrow, they put a new one in, takes like minimum a year to recover. I'm so glad I will never, ever have to think about that. I closed the book and it was done. And then so I'm facing this choice all over again, 
in real life, in like real time. And so I was lucky enough to receive a remission and my sister was a perfect match for my bone marrow. And so we went through this whole thing again. And I think what was really difficult was it was in the middle of COVID. And mm, there were a lot of different political things going on. And to just be frank with you, it was a giant fight with my family regarding like my health, the political issues, health freedoms of other people. And so like I was very isolated during that time and it was really, really hard on us. But we felt like we came out on the other end. I made a recovery in about four months from my transplant. And the doctors were like, we've never seen a recovery like this. You're like a miracle. Like, this is amazing. I started lifting again. I started running and I didn't tell my doctor because I didn't want her to freak out. But I was like ready to go back to work almost in six months. And that was just unheard of. So I was like, wow, like cancer's great. Like fall down, get back up better, fall down, get back up better. Like, yeah, it's like there are some really awful moments of thinking about death and dying, but it's only made me appreciate life more. So I like had this ultra positive mindset. And then my cancer came back a third time and they were like, we don't know anybody living with this cancer in the span that you have had it three times. You have under a 10% chance of living and we're going to give you about six months. So then we went to Seattle. We went to go see like the leukemia experts in Seattle. Same story. Then we went to MD Anderson. Same story. So we're like looking at each other like, okay, I have six months and it's really starting to sink in. Like, I'm sure you experienced this when, and we talked about this in Italy, when you were in that near-death experience, there's like this clarity. And I think that's like what yogis talk about when they try to reach, you know, true, I forget what the word is, but you know, true awareness or true consciousness where everything falls away and only the things that matter are so crystal clear and it feels so good. And there were days where I was like, oh, I'm loading the dishwasher is so amazing. The light through my window, you know, like what was going on in that moment was so spiritual and so transcendent because it was like, I didn't know if I was ever going to experience it again. I had been given six months. So Somebody cutting me off on traffic was like, amazing, I get to drive and somebody's cutting me off and look, look, like I get to experience anger. Like it was like even just, just mundane interactions just seemed so like heightened. And I've never really like been on drugs except like, you know, some edibles. But I imagine that's like what people on drugs feel like, like, whoa. And so I got put into remission and that was 18 months ago. And it's like, amazing. I beat cancer a third time. I'm a living miracle. But The downside of that is it caused a lot of complications and I've had a lot of surgeries. I see doctors several times a week. My husband had to quit his job and become a full-time caretaker at home. So my life looks a lot different and um, my physical abilities have been stripped, you know, a lot of things like that. So cancer keeps taking even though it's not here. And so I've had to kind of stop all of this positive talk that I've done for four years to carry me to this point and be like, okay. What really happened? What am I really angry about? Am I really angry that I can't build a family right now? Am I really sad that I can't feel like I can go out into the workforce and go make a difference with people every day? Am I frustrated that my marriage doesn't have the intimacy that it had before cancer? You know, cancer takes not only from you, but the people around you. Even if you're super positive like me and you're like, I'm not going to let it affect anything. Well, at some point, you're just covering up things that you need to feel with lots of positive feelings. So that's kind of where I'm at today. That was a pretty complete answer. I loved it. So when you had, like what I heard was a lot of positivity. Yeah. 
And there's that pressure to like fall into being like, but look what I did with this. Like, it's good. (laughs) It's post-traumatic growth. Look Mm -hmm. at how much better I am. I beat cancer and I'm going to, I'm going to crush it. And I have a second chance on life. Uh, No, wait, I have a third chance on life. I'm just going to (laughs) keep on growing and it's just going to be amazing. And to your point, I'm going to out Goggins Goggins. Right. Yeah. So during the quiet, darker moment, so you had all this positivity. Did you have any doubt? So it was like everything was ultra positive throughout my six months because it's this weird in between where you get to live life like nothing counts. Like someone gives you a YOLO. So like my 401k, I was like, well, don't need that. Guess we'll cash that out. So then like my husband and I like started traveling and we like, you know, started checking things off the bucket list, like, you know, hiking waterfalls in Kauai and going to Italy and going to Champagne, France, which is a place that I've always wanted to go and we went to Fiji. And so there's that like ultra fast lane of like, everything matters, because all you have is today. And so we got to kind of step into this moment of being like, why don't other why doesn't everybody else look like this? Like, why isn't everybody else think like every moment's just amazing? And then as we got further out and we approached that six months, some really chronic health issues started to happen. And I started to have a lot of pain and I couldn't walk and my joints started to like just totally break down. I lost a lot of muscle mass. I'll never forget like the day I had to stop doing like traditional yoga because my hands would rub up on the mat and the skin would just fall from my body. Anything was just destroying me. And then it was like, you know, living in a pandemic that also kind of limited we were going. And so it was when we started to kind of get out of that like fast lane and life had to start returning to quote unquote, a normal pace. And I started to look back and I was like, wow, I think I've avoided a lot of trauma through the like, endurance athlete type of mentality that I had three months after my transplant, like I was swimming, I was booing, you know, I was like, I'm gonna, you know, do my first half and I'm gonna do my full Ironman. And, and when I couldn't do these things, I started to have to think. And I truly believe that when you ignore emotions or trauma, they don't just dissipate like into the air, like they're stored in the body. So I've had four years of never taking a moment to say, well, poor me, I have cancer because I was not going to be that person. I was like, I don't have a pity story. It is what you make it. Nobody's going to give my cancer a meaning except for me. And so I fully felt that responsibility to make this thing the best thing that had ever happened to me without ever considering that the loss. So it was, you know, about a year ago that I started to feel really depressed and I started to feel really anxious and really dark and unhappy. And then I experienced this guilt of like, well, you're alive. You're living. Why do you feel depressed? What in the world is wrong with you? You ungrateful POS. Like, you know what I mean? And, and so then I'm just sitting there like totally overwhelmed and I'm like, well, I'll Goggins this out. Like, you should be happy. Like, you should be so grateful. Like, you can breathe. Like, you have a husband. You know what I mean? And I try to talk myself out of these feelings because they're bad and I shouldn't have them. And so I spent a lot of time being like, oh my gosh, this is how people who are depressed feel. 
you can't unfeel this. You can't like hurry the process along. And so I spent a lot of time avoiding until I came across some literature and some people who had also been through something similar. And they were like, the only way out is through, like, you have to feel these feelings. I'm like, well, they do nothing for me. They're bad. What if I get stuck? My biggest fear was like, if I feel these feelings, what if I get stuck and I'm never grateful for anything again? What if I can't get out? Who's going to pull me out? Because I'd always pulled other people out. You know, how do you handle that? All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out and relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate, because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. So what was that like, asking for help or needing help? So you painted the picture pretty clearly, like, no, 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 I'm the person that helps other people. I help my siblings out. I help my parents out. I'm the nurturer. I'm the giver. And now you're down. Right. You got the scars to prove it. You have the miracle story of beating cancer three times, but the reality sets in to say, you know, we ain't doing this by ourselves. I need help. Right. It's super humbling because it was like twofold. So I'm so lucky to have an amazing community of friends and family who in any way, like physically will like show up for me, right? Like you need a meal, you need me to take you somewhere, you need a trip, you need this. Like I know I'm unconditionally loved. When dealing with the dark night of the soul and the really heavy issues, it was really hard for me to say, this is hard for me to carry, let someone in and then see what happens on their face and how hard that is to hear. And then I become into, oh my gosh, you're not okay. So I want to fix your not okayness. And they're like, oh my God, but you're not okay. And so there's this like, it was really hard because in some ways I felt like I could only express part of what I was really feeling because I knew that if I were to really express the depravity of how I really felt that it would crush them and they would feel like they weren't doing enough. And I think 
What that comes from is our inability to sit with people with the really hard and uncomfortable things and understand that that is okay, that we shouldn't rush to a solution or rush to trying to fix it. And I'm guilty of it as well. And I've been trying to practice when someone tells me something that's really crippling to sit there and be like, wow, that's really deep and crippling and see how long I can hold a silence for that. And it's like an allowing the wave to pass instead of trying to like outswim it. Yeah, that whole out swimming, that is so hard. It's so hard. And I'm like, I should be a pro at it, you know, because I know that I need that. Why can't I give that to somebody else? Yeah, we are so uncomfortable just sitting with someone who's in pain, suffering, whatever word we want to use, and sitting there and say, I don't know what to say. And I can't even imagine your pain, but I'm, I'm going to sit here. We're going to do this together. I don't know how it looks, but I just want to let you know that you're not alone. I'm just going to sit here. And I just don't know what to say, but I'm not walking away. We are so uncomfortable with that. I do think when we talked about this earlier before we hit record, I imagine you get asked this. I get asked this a lot. Hey, are you back to normal? <laughs> and I, I think there's genuine interest in the person asking that question because they want to see if we're okay. Yeah. But I also think it's, it's a question that I answer in a very polite way. Because I don't think most people really want to know the answer in the, especially the early days of my, of my recovery. And I would love for you to speak about this from your perspective. What I wanted to say is like, you really don't want to hear my raw answer. So as a nurturer, as a provider, I'm not going to give you the raw answer because I don't believe that was at least the story I was telling myself that you can handle the truth. So we're going to say, yeah, I'm sort of close to normal, even though like, I don't know what normal is. And I don't think I ever really did at any point in my recovery, certainly not today when people talk about, let's just get back to normal after going through what we've gone through as a society. I don't get that question at all. But I would love for you to speak, Kara, about like that, like the whole like normal, I think you've referenced getting back to baseline and just it's really a question about progress or like, are you healing? Are you back to where you want to be? You know, it's hard because I want to scream at someone and tell them my normal is destroyed. I'm grieving a life that I will never live and it's not getting better for me. And I think that's hard for me to tell people I beat cancer and I, and my quality of life continues to decrease on a physical level. If you're looking at me on a clinical level, it's decreasing due to all the treatments that I'm doing, due to all the steroids. My doctor's visits every month increase like above the month before. So for me to look at someone and say, oh yeah, I'm 18 months in remission living, but my life is, you know, it's a very difficult conversation. So I've just been telling people I'm at baseline. Now, when I was like, really deep, dark, and figuring out how, how to ask for help for people and sit in that uncomfortableness. I did experiment by saying like, it was awful. I literally just wanted to kill myself. And they would be like, and I'm like, but I didn't. And you know, I kind of felt that way yesterday. I'm hoping we'll just ride this out. And they are just like, they don't even know what to say. <laughs> and I'm like, don't worry, I'm not expecting you to say anything. I just 
telling you how I felt today. And what, what it actually has done too, though, is even though, of course, I'm using humor to deflect, right, to make the other person feel good, is it has opened up some really good conversations where people have shared with me, people I didn't even know were depressed were really depressed or really struggling with anxiety and really holding these things and just finding ways to deflect it and feel it. And it's interesting because I feel like there's like this movement going on of people learning how to start feeling and knowing like, just because I'm depressed doesn't mean I'm a depressed person. And I can hold like being depressed and gratitude at the same time. And they can come in different ways. And I don't have to figure out which one I am today. And I used to just think in such a binary way of how am I? Am I good or am I bad? Like black or white, you know, it has to be one or the other. It can't be like, it can't be the soft flowing answer. And I think we're asking the wrong question. I don't think we should be asking like, are you normal or are you okay? Like we, I think we're just asking the wrong question and that's why we're getting such awkward answers. We're not inviting a different question. And I don't, I don't know what that question is. Yeah, I think a lot of those questions are transactional too. Like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. It's like, okay, good. All right. Now we can get into the conversation. What I really hope for us as a planet, as humans, is that when we ask these questions, they're not transactional. It's really an invitation to connect, like for reals, like how are you really doing? I think we're doing a fairly decent job. A lot of folks were in the early stages of the pandemic. It's like, Cara, how are you doing? Like, and then you'd be like, fine. And they'd be like, for reals. Like, how are you doing for reals? And that second question, I think it sends a signal. Yeah. That we care a little bit more deeply about the answer. But, you know, here's the thing. We take our health for granted. And we're doing this thing called life. Rushing around at this breakneck pace. And then when we lose our health, we're like, oh God, I want my health back. Like, you know, and then it's like, oh, I'm so grateful for my health. And then we take a lot of the relationships in our lives for granted until we lose them. Mm-hmm. I do think we're living in this moment where it's like, hey, like um, time to wake up, time to uh, change how we're doing this thing. There will still be pain and suffering and cancer diagnosis and accidents and you name it. But finding a way for us to connect with each other, this is going to sound really cliche, but like less transactionally and more, you know, in a way we can transform things and we can really strengthen our bonds. You know, like the Kintsugi art only happens when the binding material is strong enough to actually bring the pottery back together. And I think we're trying to at times the pottery breaks and we're slapping it together with like Elmer's glue. And it's like, yeah, not good enough. Right. We need like strength, the cement, the mortar, the cartilage, whatever analogy we want to use to really bring the pottery back together in a way that can be very beautiful. And we're not there yet. I think we're sometimes slow to learn, but I have hope. I'm optimistic that we can learn this. So One question I had for you, and I know I've thought about this a lot going through what I've gone through, but are there things that you once believed to be true before your cancer arrived and now today you don't believe in them? That is such an amazing question. Yes, like every day to the point where when I say something that I believe I tell someone, well, this is what I know with 
the experience and exposure that I have today, but it could be a different story. And just kind of that humbling attitude of understanding that healing is a process, a journey, there is no destination. And I think that's given me a lot of peace. Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, at this point, then I'm going to be well. And then then life is going to start for me, or it's going to go back to quote, unquote, normal, but I just need to get my health back. And so accepting that, you know, my state of healing might be really long, and I might not arrive the way I think I should. And that it is a process. And and once I came to terms with understanding the process and less of the destination, which is really hard because I'm so goal-driven, it brought so much peace in like what's around me today, like in my normal interactions with, you know, the lady at the gym who's a lot older and us talking about why she doesn't like yoga and things like that. And and having, you know, just these conversations and these things that exist, you know, that are going on all around me even though I'm not, quote unquote, doing the traditional thing that someone in their mid 30s should be doing, um, doesn't mean that, you know, these these magical moments aren't happening all over. And so I think, yeah, coming to terms with, like not arriving at a destination for everything, I used to believe like, okay, just hit this goal, just hit this monument, you know, just, just do this. And so being okay with loose ends is like a really hard thing for me right now. But there's so much like beauty and grace in that because you're so open to what's happening. And so it causes me to like put out more feelers. I really liked that you talked earlier about kind of just, you know, who are you and and getting away of less of a definition of myself and just allowing myself to exist. But, you know, I guess back to your Kintsugi analogy, it's like, I have just had some of the most amazing and beautiful moments of vulnerability with my friends and family and strangers over this that have enlightened me so much and given me so much love and so much joy, even in feeling some of the more quote unquote negative feelings, even like sharing in like the depression, the anger, the sadness, the grief, and somebody else might share some of their grief with me. And I, and I'm starting, what's interesting is I'm starting to see that like sharing in grief and anger has the same feeling as like sharing deep joy and gratitude. And that is blowing my mind because I'm like, wow, because I've had this aversion to these quote unquote negative feelings. I've missed out on a lot of these really deep moments and I don't know where the line is. And it can be beautiful sharing in those dark moments just as much as the gratitude. Now I'm almost like, forget the gratitude right now. Like, tell me what is hurting and let's sit in the hurt because it's not going to be there forever. And that's such a vulnerable, it's a privileged place when somebody invites you there. And so it's almost like cancer has given me a ticket with some of those people um, because they're like, oh, I know that you've, you know, it's, it's like when you had a near death experience when we first met, we were like, there were like looks exchanged. And then there was kind of this like pause where it was like, I know what you've seen type of a thing. Yeah, because like none of it lasts forever. You know, and I, I feel this from time to time, even today, but certainly back then, like when the early stages, because I was, I've been an optimistic kid, like my whole life. It's like, it's going to get better. Even like I had a little mantra, like work hard today, create a better tomorrow, like the whole thing. <laughs> as a kid, you're so ahead of your time as a kid. That's so funny. it was, you know, I just sort of, you know, carried into my recovery, but at times it didn't leave space 
for the yucky stuff, the adage, you know, no mud, no lotus. Right. And that was my favorite part of your book. I think that I clung to the part where you were, the parts where you were really transparent of like, this sucks. I'm alive and I'm mad about it. Oh, I was so pissed. It was, I really was like, oh, if you could just continue to just write all of your angry feelings, it just made me feel so good because you're so positive. And I'm like, okay, here's somebody that brings light and love and like reflect positive feelings everywhere. And he's saying, I'm pissed that I'm alive right now, you know? And so it made me feel good to be like, okay, Michael felt very depressed and angry. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's a depressed and angry person. That didn't, that, that moment didn't define you. You know, you felt it and it didn't define you. Yeah. I think we could just, you know, through mindfulness, you learn, you discover that you can, you can hold space for a lot. And going back to how I label my accident day, my last bad day, because good day, bad day, too binary. They're all moments. And some moments during the day are bad. Some just suck. Some are irritating. Like current day with what's going on across the planet, specifically in the Middle East, like I'm scared. And at the same time, I feel joy. I'm happy about things. And so we can experience all that and in our container, our space, if you will, we can hold a lot. So each day is a lot. We feel hopefully a range of different emotions, not just one emotion. And some people though are stuck and they might feel or think they feel one emotion because it's so dominant, but we're experiencing a lot. And I think it's I think it's helpful to be honest with, as we go through the healing process, as we go through the recovery process, that it's not simple, it's not linear, it's messy. And there are days where, yeah, we're totally upbeat and we feel great about life and this is going to be so awesome. And then we can have a moment where it just it totally blows. And you know, I've had moments more so in the beginning where I was like, man, it would have been easier if, if the truck just hit me harder and I wasn't around or like maybe it would have been easier if they didn't save my leg when you think about the why question I still get this I imagine you do as well you know people come and say well things happen for a reason like how do you feel about that when you receive it like the whole things happen for a reason what's your What's your articulation of that? How does it land? So it's really interesting that you asked me that question because I did a lot of like deep thinking about this before my diagnosis. So when I was 19, my 14-year-old brother died of bacterial meningitis and it happened just like in the span of a couple of days. And he was an amazing human. Like he was the person that looked out for the kid that was getting ignored. He was the one who was building giant ramps in the backyard would jump off a ramp, smash his face, be like, that was cool. I'm going to make it bigger. Like he was just always pushing the boundaries and always really fun and full of a lot of life. So he left a really big hole in the community. Like when he suddenly died, you know, I think it's different when a child dies. It's like, everybody agrees that that's something that shouldn't happen. You know, when, when older people get cancer, it's like, oh, it's awful. But also they lived a life. Like when a life is so quickly ended like that, it's really hard to say like, well, everything happens for a reason. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a tragedy. And I just remember 
thinking, okay, everything is falling apart and I have to figure out how to hold this together or I have to figure out how to grieve. And if I grieve, there will be no one to hold this together. So which one am I going to choose? And I chose to hold it together and to honor my brother and to honor my family. I felt like nobody was going to make his life matter if I didn't create a meaning. Me sitting here being sad is not going to give his life a meaning. But if I can find a way to allow the reality of death and to celebrate the life that he lived and to get involved, you know, in youth group and to do trips with his friends and to invest in mentoring and allow his death to change me, then like as you ripple, you know, you say that memory like lives on. So it was a, a way for me to cope of it, it was like the words were like printed on my brain, like create a meaning. If you want a meaning, create a meaning. It's not just going to just magically appear. And so I feel like putting off grieving was the right decision for me at the time. And I think just because you, again, like I said earlier, like I don't think emotions ever leave. Um, I had to come back to that later in life. But I think I made the right choice in trying to find positive ways to cope and to try to like make his life mean something. So when my cancer diagnosis came back around and people would say, everything happens for a reason, I think that is so. I don't know the right word to say, like, it's so patronizing. Like, so I have to go through all of this suffering and you don't for a meaning, especially when I've gone through it three times. It's almost like people joke like, oh, like you didn't learn the lesson the first time. Like, <laughs> like, oh, I got to go through it three times. You know, I don't think it's true. I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think you get to be the artist of that story and create the reason. Yeah, I think things happen and we create meaning around it. And sometimes that meaning is a pity party and you go down one path and then sometimes you can create a completely different meaning around it and you go down a different path. Right. And then all these roads are crisscrossing because you could have another moment. But I do believe even the loss of your brother, that out of order death that happens in life where it's like, it's not supposed to be this way. You know, as parents, you have kids, we die first. And then we don't have to deal with the pain of our kids passing before us. That out-of-order birth is so painful. It feels so unfair and not right. Don't tell me it all happened for a reason. It, these things happen and we give it meaning. So when you think about Kintsugi, we'll go back to this, the whole, the glue, if you will. In Kintsugi, it's called Urishi. So it's made from trees and uh, like a, the black tree family. And it, when it dries, it's super hard. So when you think about that being the, the ingredients, if you will, or the qualities of resilience, what I hear from you is that the people around you, I would say like, who's in your Peloton? <laughs> so when you think about resilience and developing resilience, the Urishi in your life, is it about your friends and family that are around you? I'd say probably yes, based on how you've described your journey so far. But are there other qualities that make that up for you that help you find strength to continue to go forward? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I was just talking to somebody about their intentions, right? And and I don't know about you, but probably 90% of the things that I start are not with the most amazing intention. But the intention is refined and developed 
throughout time, right? At least for me. And then it and then it becomes like a pure intention. So like an example would be like, there were days that like I was in so much pain, I could barely get out of bed. And I would have had like every excuse to sit in bed. And I didn't love myself enough to get out of bed for myself. But when I thought about my community that it had cost them so much from, you know, just a physical and emotional level to watch me go through this. And my husband who, you know, changed his career and is now my caretaker. And he's like, I don't know if I'm your husband. I don't know if I'm your nurse. I don't know if you're a friend. You know, I thought about all these things and I thought, I cannot let this be for nothing. I'm going to get out of bed because of them. I'm going to get out of bed because of what they gave to me. Now, some people would say like, oh, you need to do it for yourself. Well, I didn't have, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't grown emotionally enough to be able to make that choice. Now I can get out of bed for myself and I tenderly think of them in mind. But that was like a growth progress. I mean, I had to grow into loving myself enough to do that. And I think, yes, of course, it's important to be vulnerable with your community and your friends and your family and to ask for help. But at the end of the day, some of these really deep, hard things that you're wrestling with, you are the only one that carries enough strength to walk that own journey. And so it's really taught me a lot about my relationship with my husband and kind of understanding the areas that he can come in and support me. But I can't be like codependent or drop it all on him because there's like an undue responsibility that I owe to myself that I have the strength to find that maybe if I don't have at the moment, I need to find it. And so sometimes my community and my friends can help me find that strength, but ultimately it's being drawn within me, right? Like they might throw me the ropes and be like, here you go. You need, but at the end of the day, like I have to figure it out, you know? And so I can't put that pressure on them. And so, you know, it's a dance, right? Where those lines are like, Oh, did I throw too much of my stuff out on you? That is a, that I need to deal with, or did I throw the right amount where you can give me a tool and I can then bring it back in. So I think it's like a dance. Yeah, I love that. And so in the spirit of resilience where you you fall down, you're on the ground, there'll be the hand that reaches out to pick you back up. And so they're they're using some effort. They're burning some calories to get you back up on your feet. But ultimately, you need to summon the strength within you to help their hand out so you can stand up and when you stand up, you can stand up and be be solid with the ground. It's not all on them. They're not picking you up and also keeping you standing. You need a little bit of effort in there as well. Totally. I mean, did you, because you, I mean, you went through a lot of physical therapy that probably at points seemed completely pointless. Like you didn't even know if you'd walk again. So in those moments, when did you draw from yourself versus like drawing from others? And how did you keep how did you know when you had to like have the hard conversation with yourself to get you to to do those things? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to that conversation you have with yourself. If I'm a reductionist, I think it does come down to that. Like how do you how do you see yourself even when you're really broken and you feel vulnerable and and naked? You know, there were times where I would joke with my wife, I said, I think that the title of my memoir is like life looks different on top of a bedpan because (laughs) here you are, you know, I was naked on top of a bedpan and everyone was waiting around my bed for me to poop. And it's something just so like raw about that. And you, you don't feel dignified as well. And you're like, this is it. Like you got to find a way to like shift the narrative. Um, So there's a big part of me clearly that is about providing and you know, as a 
as a husband, as a dad, you know, our girls were three and a half years old and seven months old at the time of the accident. So there was a lot in me about providing and like, okay, we got to make this happen for others, get back to, you know, normal, as we've talked about, whatever that looks like. But ultimately, when you're in the hospital, for as long as we've been in the hospital, you have a lot of time on your hands. When I was in the hospital, there wasn't a thing called a podcast. There was no social media. I couldn't read because of my concussion. I couldn't really keep attention. I didn't want to watch TV all the time. So there, was, there wasn't much to do except try to have a better conversation with myself and try to find the strength. And so you have to go back to moments in your life where you had a challenge in front of you and you found a way through, to your point. The only way through is through. So I would I would work on that conversation. And sometimes it was really uplifting and strong. And other times it was pretty dark and I just wanted to quit. And I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And all points in between. When it comes to your scars, because we love to celebrate scars, and scars can be emotional, they can be physical. Is there a scar that you look at and you're like, yeah, I really dig that scar? Interesting. So, I mean, I like have a double port right now. There's like a pretty nasty scar. That's like, not a lot of people see it. It's just kind of a thing that like exists. This is going to sound really interesting. When I lost my hair for the first time, I loved being bald. And I know you're thinking like, okay, 29 year old, long, dark hair, you know, like, and I wasn't, you know, like I liked looking nice. I liked being beautiful. But when I lost my hair, I felt like it was my way to take back and reclaim femininity. And so for me, I didn't want to opt in for a wig. I wanted to show the world that I was comfortable moving forward with what I had. And that was like part of my strength. And I felt all of the other women that are on the verge of dying, and I hope this doesn't come out insensitive like to anyone, I, I mean, no disrespect, but you're dying and you're worried about your hair. That's the society that we're in. Like, you should be worried about the moments that you have with your kid or cuddling your dog more. But we're, we're, we're like so focused on the hair. And yes, of course, that's a part of our femininity. But I kind of I wanted to reclaim that for other women and be like, hey, why don't you worry about going on a trip to Fiji instead of your hair? Like, that's way cooler and way more fun. And so I just kind of felt like, in doing that, like maybe it can encourage other women, like, hey, it's okay that you might be dying to not worry about your hair. And instead, like, go plan a fun trip or go order every dessert off the menu at a restaurant or, you know, go randomly gift the old lady at your wife something really, really cool. You know, there are just so many more things to like pay attention to. And so, again, I don't want to disrespect anybody that, you know, that was really hard and like a super big loss. But for me, I kind of like took it around the other way. And I think, too, because I was bald, it was like there was so much I didn't have to say. People just knew. And if I was wearing it proudly, I felt like people that wanted to ask questions got the vibe. I feel like she could handle the questions. And so then it would invite really good conversation because if I wasn't hiding it on the outside, it looked like I was willing to have a conversation and I was. Yeah. And how often do we dress up the outside so we don't have to let people inside? Body armor, how we look, that can run the gamut. But like we, we put up a lot of fronts. We wear a lot of armor, even though intellectually, and I think we've come a long way over the last several years, we've read stories, we've been inspired by them, where people have been vulnerable, not a TMI share too much type of thing, but where there's like really honest vulnerability and how that 
changes our relationship with life. No, that's good for those other people. But I'm going to I'm going to keep on wearing my body armor because I like to walk around heavy, you know, like with all this baggage and all this stuff and uh it's uh life is a lot easier when you let go of the weight. Right. And I mean, not to bring it back to like mindfulness, but since it is like what you do, if you don't have the ability to be alone with yourself sitting in that space, right, for a period of time, of course, you're not going to be able to show up for that way to anyone in public. And so it really starts like in those private spaces of you being able to hold space for those feelings for yourself. And if you can't, I mean, it's going to be obviously reflected in your relationships and and, in the depth of your, you know, conversation. Yeah, I I love that. I think one of the things that I discovered most, I sort of alluded to this just a couple minutes ago, but I got comfortable being with myself during this whole thing, just being quiet with myself, being still, just being, and not in the chase, right, after the external merit badge or what have you, because that was a big part of what I thought life was. You know, come out of college and you start your professional life. Like that's it. So you're never by yourself. You're always going. And it really forced me to hit pause and had a lot of quiet nights and quiet afternoons and quiet mornings and just being. So I want to end on this note because you have this lovely blog. So I've been able to read through a lot of it. You have a quote from Brianna West. Love her. Yeah. So she's great, right? So what you put in the post is this. You don't heal some things. You just start living in spite of the presence of their presence, which is when they heal themselves. And I was hoping you could comment on that as we round out our conversation, because you mentioned this earlier, like we're so quick to want to make things better right away, fix it right away. We don't allow things to breathe. We don't allow things to unfold as they're supposed to unfold. And I'd love for you to share more about what that quote means to you. Yeah, it's been a quote that I've I've had to like constantly remind myself because I think anybody with like a chronic illness can even relate to this of, am I ever going to get better? Are things ever going to return to normal? And you're kind of taught to like wait and kind of like hold everything at a certain point, you know, like don't release the floodgates, like don't really start living until you get your health figured out or don't really start living until, you know, you get your retirement set or like don't really start living until, until, until. And the thing is, is those moments keep moving, right? Like I remember like, oh, when I just get engaged, when I just get married, when I just, when I just, and those moments are here right now. And so it really taught me like, I don't know if I'm going to get better, but I cannot cheat myself out of the moments and the days that I have being like throwing them away because I'm I'm not at my like optimal place. And so it's really taught me, I hate this because it sounds so corny, but I mean, to really take each day at a time and to really look for kind of how precious some of these like mundane moments can be and allow them to like really unfold and kind of just put feelers out and see what happens. But yeah, I think I was waiting for a perfect moment. And when I saw that quote, it just revealed so much about myself and just about my ego and what I wanted to accomplish and understanding like, what if this is the rest of my life? What if I never go back to work? What if the rest of my life is managing a disease? You know, what if I am lucky enough, quote unquote, like to continue living, but then I have to manage this this chronic disease? What 
is that going to look like? Am I going to keep waiting for something? So yeah, so it just kind of taught me to stop telling myself that I wanted this ideal life and to just quit putting labels on it. I love that. Be more afraid of not living than dying. Yeah. And I think that's a great, a great message to end our conversation on. But I'll have to ask this. If people want to find you, where should they find you? I'm on Instagram. My Instagram's Carolay. And um, yeah, my blog, I think it's bravelove.org is my Earl. Yeah. I think it's .org. Okay. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> that's what it is. I'll put it in the show notes as podcasters say they do. So slowly but surely becoming a podcast host again. I'm so glad. Love you so much for doing this and just what you put into the world. The world needs your energy. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It was just a pleasure to talk about life and moments that matter in the here and now. Hey there. Isn't Kara great? I love her energy and how she tells her story with honesty and vulnerability because life is not perfect. It's messy. Things happen and then we get to decide how we're going to respond to them. I'm sure you took away a lot of gems from our conversation. Here are three that I'm taking away. The first one is all about being okay with talking about our struggles. Not everything has to be awesome. When we go through life, we're going to have moments when we suffer, there's pain, it's uncomfortable, we hate it, and we'll also have moments of joy. But we don't have to spin everything into something positive. So that was the first takeaway. It's okay to feel, as the kids would say, feel all the feels. And if you're surrounded by the right people, which is number two, they're going to be comfortable with you sharing what you're going through. So let's get to number two, the power of community. Or, as I like to say, the power of your Peloton. Kara's here because of her friends and family. This is a common theme of every story of resilience I hear. The fact that we don't travel alone together, we go far, we need each other. When we have moments, we lean on each other. And when someone else has a moment, they lean on us. That we ride, we live, we laugh, and we cry with people who bring out the best in us. And we in turn, can bring out the best in them. One additional thing that Kara shared around community is important to reflect on. Yes, we will have people around us that will help us back up, but we also have to put in the effort. So when we fall, they will be the hand that reaches out. But as they lift us up, we have to engage our muscles. We have to also put in the effort to stand back up, and then take the next step, that small step forward that builds our kintsugi. And I love that Kara mentioned this. And now, the third thing. When we're with someone who is hurting, much like 
Kara hurt and hurts like you, like me. If we're sitting with someone who's going through something, our natural tendency is to make it better right away. We're compassionate. We don't like to see someone in pain. But sometimes the best thing to do is not try to fix it. But rather just be with that person. Sit with them. You can even say, I have no idea what you're going through. And I don't know what will make it better. But I want to let you know, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to be with you. I've got your back. So many times in life, the best thing isn't to fix it right away. Maybe the best thing is to let it breathe and just let it be and sit with someone. And in that space, maybe the solution or the way to make it better will unfold naturally. So those are the three things I took away from this week's conversation with Kara. And I would love to hear what you took away from what she said. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the like-hearted humans at SASPod that make the Kintsuki podcast sound so great and help it ripple into all corners of this big blue marble that we all share. And now, I want to thank you for listening and supporting the Kintsuki podcast. And if you want to go above and beyond in your support, I could certainly use a kind rating, a review, subscribing, or sharing because it does something to the algorithm that I don't completely understand. But when you engage in this way, it helps others find our like-hearted community. If you've already done so, thank you for the extra support. And if you haven't done so yet, today might be a really good day to do so. And if you'd like to receive some additional resources that can help you connect with yourself and others, like my Better Life Workbook and the inspirational text messages I send throughout the week, and of course, our Pause, Breathe, Reflect meditation app, I'll put those links in our show notes. And remember, between now and next week's story of connection, when you have a challenging moment, slow down, come back to your breath, and know that you've got this and we've got you. And together, we will ripple something worth rippling into the world. I love you for listening, and I hope to see you next week. Until then, toodaloo.